0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: In the northeast of France is the Champagne region, where they make all that lovely, sparkling fizz, and they've been making it there since the Middle Ages. Alex Landrigan was born there into a champagne making family. When he was little, his parents decided to take a risk on a new business opportunity far from home, and they moved their family to Australia. Alex's father had high hopes for making sparkling wine in country Victoria, and he was instrumental in the creation of Yellow Glen. But one day at the winery, a freak accident changed the family's fortunes. Alex is now an author, and I spoke with him a couple of years ago about his story and his ingenious novel called Crossings, which pivots on the idea of metempsychosis. I asked him to describe what that is and how far back the idea goes.
2: Well, it's an ancient idea that is, uh, I guess, similar to reincarnation in the sense that it's the belief that souls can cross from one body to another after death. My idea is different in, in crossings. A crossing is what happens when a soul moves from one body, one living body, into another living body. It's an exchange, so the other body's soul crosses into the first body. It's based on a story that was told to me by Chris Wallace Crabb, who's a well-known poet. He said, I just read the most fantastic story on the weekend. It's about a ship that discovers an island, and on the island, all the Indigenous people can cross from one body into another. And by the time the story ends, you don't know who's gone and who's left behind. And that's all he said. That's almost literally word for word what he said. But I remember at the time, that, because I already wanted to be a writer at that stage, obviously, and I thought, wow, that's the story I want to write. But someone else hasn't had the idea before I could have a go at it. And so I just put it out of my mind. Years and years later, Chris wallace Crab got in touch and I asked him about it and he said he couldn't remember the story. Mm. So I don't know who wrote the story. The story is gone in the midst of time. But a few years ago when I was thinking about what to write as a novel, I was really searching around very deeply and I realised that when the ship sails away, the story is only just beginning. Those souls who have escaped in the bodies of sailors, their their journey is bound to be an extraordinary one. And so that's the story I ended up telling with crossings.
1: There's a story of Paris in it too, and how much Paris changes over 150 years. How much did you have to insert your imagination into what that city would have been like? The funny thing about Paris
2: now is that when we go to Paris, we go because it's an old city. But the fame of Paris is based on the fact that in the 19th century, It was actually a new city. It was a city that that reinvented itself. It had been a medieval city and then around the middle part of the century, this extraordinary process of of rebuilding took place. and, And by the end of the 19th century, by the start of the 20th century, Paris could rightly claim to be the most modern old city in the world
1: kind of like the New York of the 19th century in that sense, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. With all these
2: newfangled things in it.
1: And and people went there to see newness. We go there now to see oldness. Your name, Landragon, is really Jean. Have I pronounced that right? Have I? Or close enough? Quite or? close. It's Londrajean. Londrajean. I beg your yeah. pardon? I mentioned your, your, your family's from uh, the Champagne region. Tell me about that region and the village where your father's from.
2: I um, am from a vi- My father is from a village called Verzunay about halfway between Reims and Épernay. It is the heart of the Champagne region. It is one of 12 villages that are classified as Grand Cru, which means that their grapes are considered the best and they get the highest price for their grapes. It's a village that there's probably only 500 or 1,000 people in it and everyone makes wine. Even you know, if you work at the post office, the, the, the the postal clerk will have some vines and will make some wine. And by making wine, I mean they grow grapes. And any number of things can happen to those grapes. They can either bottle them themselves and sell them uh, by subscription to connoisseurs, or they can sell the grapes to a co-op or sell the juice to a co-op or sell the grapes or the
1: juice to one of the great brands. It's an all-consuming livelihood in that village. What's so magic about those vines? Are they special vines or is it just the the name and the brand of champagne that attaches to them?
2: No. One of the big things about champagne, one of the very instructive things is the emphasis that that they put on tradition. And it's a tradition that's hundreds of years old. Champagne was really pioneered by a monk, I think, in the 17th or 18th century called Dom Perignon, who did a huge amount of uh, research into champagne and kind of invented champagne. but there was a pre-existing tradition and there's been a tradition that's, that's continued since and all that knowledge accumulates over time and, and they've come up with a really kind of complex system of classifying the different villages in this great hierarchy which determines in a, in a way the, the fate of that village because it means that some villages are quite prosperous and others are less prosperous. Each one of those villages has a specialty. Uh, Valziner's specialty is a Pinot Noir grape, but with north-facing slopes, which means that it it ripens really slowly and uh, ends up with a unique combination of vivaciousness of flavour, which we associate with sparkling wine, but also with complexity. Vivaciousness and complexity is an unusual combination,
1: <laughs> right? And that's the vine, or the land, or the soil, the soil. That's or, all of those, all those things. things. And the French call that terroir. It's
2: considered the expression of the place. It's a uniquely French concept, but it's a it's a concept that um, they will defend because it's partly tradition and it's partly identity and that's why champagne makers uh, will go to court at the drop of a hat as soon as any other winemaker tries to put the words champagne, méthode champenoise, because they're obviously not just protecting their economy, they're, they're protecting their identity as well. I,
1: I think that's been good for Australia in the end to drop the word champagne from our sparkling wines. Otherwise, we seem like a poor runner-up and that way we, we're kind of forced to make our own thing, if you like, in this country. That's, that's been a good thing, I think. That's right. Otherwise, it's reminiscent of the culture cringe. Yeah, exactly, indeed. So your mother is not from that part of the world. Tell me how your father and your mother met each other.
2: So my mother is Armenian, My mother was born in Soviet Armenia, but my grandparents are from Istanbul. They're Turkish-Armenians whose families uh, survived the genocide and stayed in Istanbul after the genocide. My grandparents ended up in Soviet Armenia kind of by mistake, a tragic mistake. They left Istanbul uh, bound for the New World, but they stopped off in Marseille in France where my grandfather had an older brother who said, look... I've got these two tickets on a charter boat. The Armenian community has chartered a big boat and thousands of Armenians are going to go to Soviet Armenia. This was in 1948 in a kind of Zionist... Type of Zionist type of a movement, I right, guess. Right. Back to the Armenian homeland. Back you to mean. the Armenian homeland to rebuild the homeland.
1: Oh, God. But one that's run by Stalin? Yeah.
2: Right. But my great uncle was married to a French woman who said, No way am I going to go over there. So he said, Why don't, he said to my grandparents, Why don't you take these tickets? And they were full of, I mean, after World War II, the whole world was full of leftist utopianism. And in that spirit, they joined the boat. But of course, as soon as they got to a port in Georgia, uh, which was also Soviet at the time, um, they realised that they'd made a giant mistake. My my mother was born soon afterwards, and uh, she spent the first 17 years of her life in Soviet Armenia, but then later on in Odessa. When she was about 16, 17, the French relatives of the Armenians who'd gone to Armenia, lobbied the French government to lobby the Soviet government to let those people go back. And so my grandparents got to go back to France when my mum was about 17 and they settled down in Marseille. And so about three or four years later on, my grandfather decided to take his daughters to Istanbul to, to see their relatives that they'd never met. My mother was in 1968 she was 20 she was with my grandfather they were traveling overland they got to the Bulgarian border and customs police must have looked at their passports and said you you've got a really strange background here we're not going to let you through but my mother according to the story said there's no way I'm going back I'm here and she looked around and she saw a combi van full of French ba- uh, backpackers <laughs> and uh, she she said she had a watermelon with her and, and she went over and she offered uh, what she said was a very handsome and correct young man a slice of watermelon and that young man was my father. Dressed in a Lacoste shirt, polo shirt, and um, she continued travelling. They were travelling through the east of Europe and she continued travelling with them and that's how they first met.
1: So did they go back to, to your your father's village after that? So
2: it took them four years to get married when they finally did marry, yes, they went back to Versailles.
1: Now, but um, there's
2: a there's a whole economy uh, in village champagne making life that is um, geared around an old law that stretches back to the French Revolution. It's part of what's known as the Napoleonic Code. When Napoleon came in, one of his revolutionary laws was to get rid of primogeniture. So that from Napoleon on in France, um, a, a a person's estate had to be divided equally between their children. It could no longer all go to the first child. This had a massive effect on French society. It helps explain why France was such a prosperous country in the nineteenth century, because it, it redistributed wealth. And what it me- but what it meant in my father's village was that you had all these big families, and these small peasant holdings of vines were split up equally amongst the children. So the children all ended up with these tiny little allotments of vines, one or two rows of vines, and they had to find someone else within the village or from a nearby village who also had a small allotment of vines, and that way they could combine the allotments and make a living for their own families. My father married outside the village. so
1: so that that his prospects weren't much good after that. He felt his prospects were
2: not much good. So he became a winemaker for hire, which was unusual in the tradition tradition of my family. The Landragin family has been making champagne for, as far as we know, at least as far back as the French Revolution, probably earlier, but before that they would have been working for the great monasteries who made the champagne before the French Revolution. So he became a winemaker for hire, and so he, they ended up leaving Valzenay after a couple of years, and, and they ended up making sparkling wine on the other side of France, near Tours. Our, my first memories, therefore, when I was two, three, four years old, are uh, of us living in an old chateau, near azay le rideau uh, on a vineyard surrounded by vines, and that lasted a couple of years. It was a beautiful time, um, but then my father uh, was somehow he ended up being headhunted by Seppelts, a uh, South Australian winemaking company, and we ended up uh, moving to Ararat in Western Victoria and he was the winemaker at Seppelts Great Western for a number of years
1: right where their famous cheap brand of sparkling wine was or champagne as they called it in those days great western champagne indeed yes. so that was wow that's oh, that's a that's a big journey i think to go from a kind of a classic french winemaker to making great western champagne in uh, in western victoria so the family moved to Ararat Now, correct me if I'm wrong here. Ararat, Victoria is named after, what, Mount Ararat in Turkey? Isn't that where Noah's Ark was supposed to have
2: landed? Indeed, and Mount Ararat is a remarkable mountain in a number of ways. It's the tallest mountain from base to summit in the world. It's also the national symbol of the Armenians.
1: Right. So it must have been attractive to your mother, I suppose, this Ararat. That sounds good. Well,
2: attractive or not, remember that my mother's Armenian experience was tinged with this tragedy. I've been to Armenia, and it's a beautiful country, but the funny thing about Mount Ararat is that it's in eastern Turkey, in that part of Armenia that Armenians considered, or still do consider, land that they've been dispossessed from. Everywhere you go in Armenia, because it's such a tall mountain and it kind of stands alone, everywhere you go you see Mount Ararat, they, but they can't go there because the border between Turkey and Armenia is closed because they still don't get along. So it's like a a very potent symbol of dispossession.
1: Yeah, it must have had some poetic resonance, though, for your your mother in arriving in Australia. I'm
2: deeply indebted to my mother because her life is full of poetic resonances. (laughs) I realise now looking back that the reason why Ararat in Western Victoria is called Ararat is because the silhouette of the mountain that Ararat looks onto, which is now called Mount Langi Duran, is an exact replica of the silhouette of Mount Ararat in eastern Turkey. It's also called colloquially the pregnant woman. It's like a double hump. So, yes, it must have been strange for my mother to end up in a weird reflection of her own origins.
1: Do you remember arriving in Ararat, Victoria, as a kid? I remember it uh, vividly.
2: I remember going my first day at school and knowing... Only two expressions: goodbye and shut up. And
1: um, <laughs> they wouldn't have served you too well. No, <laughs> I don't think. No. And once you arrived there, what did your what did your parents make uh, and your mum in particular make of Ararat, Victoria?
2: Well, my mother's an arachnophobe, and uh, when she got to Australia, she was like many migrants flabbergasted by the <laughs> muscularity of our spiders. She was also... Yes,
1: it's certainly true. We have the world's most muscular spiders. <laughs> there's no doubt about it, yes.
2: But she was also <laughs> shocked by the Australian accent. My mother had learned to speak English already. My father, when he came, could not speak English. But she had already learned to speak English as an au pair girl in London before she got married. She loved um, what she considered proper English, the Queen's English. And she was shocked by the by the accent when we came here. So to help our father learn to speak English, we were encouraged to speak English at home, but on the condition that we spoke English with a posh accent. So what
1: did that mean when you went to school with the Well, accent, it meant that right?
2: I had two accents. For the first few years of my life, I had two accents. I had home accent and I had schoolyard accent. And never the twain did ever meet. So I couldn't invite friends back home because they would hear me speak with a posh accent and call my mother mummy.
1: (laughs) And so what, your house had a lavatory and a parlor (laughs) and a conservatory and all those things, I suppose. It it? it? It wasn't quite that bad,
2: but it was on the scale. Did you get them mixed up? Well... Only once was there any leakage and that was when I was in class one day with a burning question, my hand held high. The teacher, Mr Porter, had his back turned to the class and in my enthusiasm I yelled out, Mummy! And was shamefaced for weeks <laughs> afterwards.
1: How how keen was your mum on assimilating into uh, Australian culture? Not at those. all.
2: It's a weird thing. She She really... She really wanted us to stick out. She did not want us to assimilate. She made us, um, instead of wearing the short shorts, the stubbies that were fashionable at the time, she cut our jeans off at the knees and and forced us to wear these long Bermuda-style shorts. I mean, these are, are tiny little things, but they were great aggravations at the time, for me at least, because my greatest desire was to blend in. I hated my name. I remember saying to my parents once, when I'm 18, I'm going to change my name. School was a struggle. Blending in with the boys was impossible. All my friends were girls. So to me, it was a curse at the time.
1: Character building in the long run, though, surely.
2: Oh, I wouldn't change it for the world now, no.
1: So tell me how Yellow Glen sparkling wine changed your dad's fortunes.
2: So there was a businessman in Ballarat called Ian Home who had a uh, hobby vineyard called Yellow Glen that made table wine. But he saw a gap in the market between the cheap plonk that was being made and the French champagne at the time. So he approached my father and they went into partnership and and we moved to Smysdale, the the Yellow Glen winery just outside Ballarat. My father started making serious sparkling wine. I believe it may have been the first time in Australian wine history that serious sparkling wine was made. And it just took off.
1: I don't remember when it came in the market, there was that gap between you know, Passion Pop on the one hand and uh, Moet and uh, Verve Kiko on the other. That's right.
2: And it led to a landmark event in the history of my family. Because just at the time that it was taking off, my mother became pregnant uh, with her fourth child. So when we came to Australia, there was me and my brother, and then I had a sister born soon afterwards. My second sister was born just when Yellow Glen was booming. And she went off to hospital. In those days, women would go off to hospital for a few days when when they gave birth. But it was an important time in the winery as well. So my father got me—I was uh, ten, my brother who was eight—to work on the production line. I did this for a day, and then the second day I—I had I, had enough. I, I scooted off on my bike, and I didn't want to be. Didn't want to... anything to do with the the winery at that stage. My. Brother, unfortunately, uh, the second day, ended up working a machine that uncaps bottles after the first fermentation to help get them ready for the second fermentation. And unfortunately, something happened with the machine and he ended up having his finger mangled in the machine. And he ended up having to go to hospital to have his finger amputated. My mother, meanwhile, was in hospital getting ready to give birth to my younger sister. So that night or the next, my poor father had to drive to hospital, which was a narrow way, and on the way back, presumably, he had to tell my mother that um, unfortunately, my, my brother had had this accident in the winery as an eight-year-old, or Did she blame him? The way that I remember it, there was a change in her personality after that. She um, probably now looking back, you might say she fell into a postnatal depression but it lasted a long time, and rightly so. Imagine your spouse getting your eight-year-old child to work you know, and, and, and having that kind of accident. So Yellow Glen was really booming, but the business relationship between the partners soured. I'm, I'm kind of looking back and, and building a narrative. These are stories that are, are not spoken about in, between us as a family. But I imagine that the business relationship soured. Yellow Glen was sold soon afterwards to Mildara, which is now has a completely different name but is a behemoth. And Yellow Glen is Australia's biggest sparkling wine brand. But it was sold, and it was sold for a good sum. So suddenly the family goes, not from rags, but from humble beginnings. Within a few years of arriving in Australia, we were well off. And my father was, um, you know... Uh, a well-regarded figure in the wine industry, and the family moved into a house away from the winery. Uh, my father ended his relationship with Yellow Glen, and we bought a magnificent, a, a truly magnificent house outside of Ballarat, like a, a Frank Lloyd Wright-inspired modernist cubist thing that just that cascaded in a way down a hill overlooking a dam and rising up over onto another hill. And it was like the zenith of the family's fortunes. In a way, we'd made it as a, as a migrant family. We were living in palatial circumstances. But there was this uh, weird shadow looming over the family at the same time because my, my mother's temper had really kind of flowered, it became kind of an ongoing theme over the next few years. How about
1: your dad's business? How was that going?
2: So, my father had to reinvent himself. And looking back now, again, these are things that are not really spoken about, but I often think of my father as uh, someone who is akin to a musician who's a one hit wonder. His first hit has done well, has done better than could possibly have been expected. And now he has to try to replicate the success. Unfortunately, though, in many cases, that that first hit is never replicated. So his first idea was to start importing his family champagne from Valsadier into Australia. But Yellow Glen had succeeded because he plugged a, a hole in the market. Champagne Landragin was unpronounceable for for, for one thing. But it also, it was like, uh, it was really no different to, it was, it was a quality product, but it wasn't really any different to any number of different um, champagnes that were already in the market.
1: Like, like Moet or Verve, which is easier to say. Exactly,
2: mm. and much better known. So that didn't work out. So then he had the idea of um, doing something that wasn't done much at the time and is now um, much more conventional, but he he, he started... He, you know, he mortgaged the house and and um, he started buying wine from other people and blending it and and selling it under his own name. That didn't work out either. This was the eighties. It was late eighties, and and over a number of years, the interest rates kept going up and up. And um, there were various events such as uh, you might remember the airline pilot strike of mm-hmm. the time, which my father still talks about to this day bitterly as having uh, ruined him. There were a couple of incarnations of that idea and none of them worked out.
1: Could you feel that, could you feel that sense of sinking, that sense of sinking in the family's fortunes as, as a teenager?
2: Absolutely. My father, his tradition is an artisanal one. In Champagne, there's the vigneron, the, 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 wine, the wine people, and there's the négociant, the business people. My father was from the vigneron uh, tradition, not the négociant tradition. And they're considered very different traditions, you know, um, their specialisations.
1: It's like an artist and an agent, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and his Yellow Glen partner had been a businessman. My father didn't have any business experience. So I think he kind of suffered for that, for that reason. And um, gradually over a number of years, um, we got more and more into debt. My mother, on the other hand, was from an Armenian background. Now, our business is in the blood of Armenians. Uh, Armenians are great traders. They're great in-betweeners. They played a pivotal role in the history of Europe because they were among those merchants who brought goods along the, the Silk Road from the Orient to Europe. So mm. a business acumen is, is, it seems to be imprinted into the DNA of, of uh, many Armenians. And so my mother was like a, a Greek chorus with this running commentary on
1: how um, poorly we were faring over a number of years and she wasn't great about living in Australia to begin with with the spiders and everything yes.
2: indeed and and but the weird thing about this house this this amazing house we'd moved into it, it seemed to be infested with spiders and and the worse oh, the, no. the worse the family <laughs> fortunes were, the more spiders there appeared to be, so it was almost um, a, Towards the end there, it was no unusual thing to walk into a room and see three huntsmen on, on a wall. <laughs> I remember sitting on the toilet one day and a huntsman fell on my shoulder <laughs> and bounced off my shoulder and ended up on the floor and I just ran out with my pants around
1: my ankles. What, what, does, that, what does that seem like to a, 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 a more than slightly superstitious Armenian woman? It's like, the it's like, get out. Is that, is, that, is that what it means? Get out. You're, she
2: you're, she you're... saw omens everywhere. Right.
0: This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au/slash conversations.
1: You're, you're explaining it there how your mum and her Armenian background led her to see omens and everything, and when you've got an average of three huntsmen on the walls in your house as the business is going south for your family in Ballarat, that that didn't feel so good. Was any of this a surprise to your mother that things were going badly?
2: No. She and and her, my grandmother, loved the idea of your fortune being told. In Armenian culture, they drink coffee with sediment at the bottom and it's uh, no uncommon thing to turn your cup over when your coffee is drunk and to read the, the the fall of the sediments against the side of the coffee cup for glimpses of what the future might hold. And obviously this is coming out of a culture where there's a great anxiety about survival. So as as my father's business was sinking slowly in this under this great weight of debt, with people calling up all the time asking for their money and my mother having to invent all these lies about how how my father was away. She often used to tell us about having once had her fortune told where the fortune teller had said, one day you will leave Australia with nothing but the shirts on your backs and you will be glad to leave. It wasn't the only time she saw a fortune teller. And another time um, she went to see another fortune teller who, and she came back and, and we asked her what fortune had been told for us. And she said, the woman told me about all my children. You, speaking to me, she said, you will always be restless. You, speaking to my brother, you will always do well with women on account of your large endowment. And you, she said to my sister... You will always be a disappointment.
1: <laughs> I bet mean, that was the last time you, you asked mum, what did the fortune teller say? Son- <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's right. But the other fortune teller, I mean, that second one I think was a bit off the mark, but um, the first one, was she was right. Towards the end of the 80s, my father just gave up. He gave up trying to save the business. Everything looked hopeless. His... Strategy to save the family consisted of writing job applications cold to hundreds of wineries around the world, offering his services. I remember there were applications to Chile, there were applications to Japan, not France, but most of them went to uh, the US. I was finishing high school at the time. I was in boarding school. Um, the board, the school bills were were left unpaid, like all the other bills, of course. This was at a time when our furniture was being repossessed, the car was repossessed at a certain point. And he miraculously got offered a job on a vineyard in Virginia. They make wine in Virginia? Well, there is wine made in Virginia and some of it is quite good, but it is not a natural wine growing area. I think um, everyone would agree on that. Uh, The climate, the soil, there are a number of factors that make it less optimal than California, for example. So they were off to Virginia? So they were off to Virginia. Just as I was finishing um, high school, i just finished my exams, literally only just finished my exams when my family was packing to move to Virginia. My father had gotten a job uh, as running a winery that was a hobby winery for a French billionaire who'd made his money in corporate laundering. Wine has always been a plaything of the rich and powerful. Uh, it's a really great way of schmoozing if you, you know, if you need to do some lobbying and influencing. And so my father ended up uh, with my mother and two sisters in Virginia. My brother and I stayed
1: behind to study in Australia. It's not a bad gig, I suppose, though, if you think about it, uh, for a guy who's come from where your father's come from to end up there, that's, that must have seemed like a lifeline, lifeline to him.
2: It was. It felt like we had been
1: thrown some kind of life-saving device at the time. How about you? Did you stay in Australia or go with them to Virginia?
2: Well, when I was about 16, 17, around that time when my um, parents' business was going under, I decided that I wanted to be a writer. I had read a couple of books that gave me a feeling that was really powerful and wonderful. It was the feeling of, I want to do that. I decided I was going to move to France and I was going to become a writer and I was going to live in France. And it was actually like a pretty good uh, arrangement for my parents because it meant that I could go and live with my Armenian grandparents in Marseille. I would be well looked after. They didn't have to worry about me. I got to Marseille soon after the new year. And a week later, I get a letter in the mail from the French army. You've just turned 18. You're eligible for the National Service. It was the final years of the French National Service. It was abolished soon after. But my, num- my as soon as I got to France, my number one aim at that point was to figure out a way of not going to the army. My French was terrible. That was another weird thing about going back to France was... Because we'd spoken English at home initially to help my dad learn, but English had become the lingua franca at home, uh, my French was actually abominable. I realised that I was much less French than, than I had thought, which was a shock, especially living with my Armenian grandparents. My, uh, my grandfather never learnt to speak French. He, he had about two or 300 words of, of French. I didn't speak Armenian. Um, the weird thing about my grandfather, a wonderful man, was that I know he was a great raconteur, because I used to watch him tell stories in Armenian to Armenians and have them in stitches, but I had no idea what he was saying. But it's an interesting thing to get to notice somebody without being able to speak with them. The, the, uh, love is possible without language. But I had bigger fish to fry at that point. I had to get out of the army. So Armenians, at least in France, are great pullers of strings, and, and strings were pulled, and I got found myself in year 11 of the local Marseille high school because I needed to be a student to get a deferral of my national service of three years. More strings were pulled and I got into a a university in Aix-en-Provence, which is near Marseille. But as soon as I got to university, I realised that the arts course that I thought I was going to do was not built on the Australian model. It was more specifically a course designed to train teachers. And I decided very quickly that I was going to go back to Melbourne and go back to the University of Melbourne and do an arts degree and I was going to go back to the comfort
1: of the country that I knew well. You started performing on the piano for various musicians. Tell me about how you learned to specialise in that kind of really lovely old-fashioned New Orleans jazz piano style.
2: So I've been playing piano all my life, and I've been improvising. Back at boarding school, I remember um, a really great way of getting out of compulsory study in the evening was to say, I'm just going to go up to the piano room, and I'd go up and I'd bash away a kind of really rudimentary blues. And subsequently, of course, as as you learn more and more about music, you realise that there's so many connections between American blues and African music and Middle Eastern music and how they're all kind of connected through these really beautiful strands. But around the age of 40, I had a, a serious uh, motorcycle accident. It was around the time that I got the idea to write crossings. And in the emergency room, when I told them that I was a writer and a piano player, the nurse or the doctor, I don't know who it was, but they looked at me with, a, with this look on, on their face as if to say, "Oh, don't know if we can, oh, that, might, that might be the end of your, your writing and piano
1: playing well, your hands damaged were
2: No, my um my elbow. They had to reconstruct my elbow with a graft from my hip. So, afterwards, I I remember while I was recovering listening to a lot of Jelly Roll Morton. Jelly Roll Morton is my hero. He's like my patron saint. He he was a, a he was a Creole from New Orleans was a musical prodigy, took up the piano when he was 11. By the time he was 13, he was playing in the brothels of New Orleans at the time. This is in the 1890s. New Orleans was a proudly French city that modelled itself on Paris to such an extent that in the 1890s, they legalised prostitution there. So he was kicked out of home and he ended up making great sums of money as a piano player in these brothels in the Storyville district, which were these wooden houses. Practically all the houses in in New Orleans are wood because um, when the barges were sent down the Mississippi River, when they got to New Orleans, they were pulled apart and turned into houses. And the brothels were these grand two-story buildings with a piano in the middle and they weren't just brothels they were they were called sporting houses that they were casinos and bars and nightclubs they were everything they were centers of life and the piano would be in the middle of these sporting houses and the piano player would play and and the music would waft through the entire building so that if you were upstairs you could faintly hear this really beautiful, sweet music that was being made downstairs that was a a, a kind of hybrid of all these different styles that were in the city at the time, including Caribbean music and Appalachian music and Negro spiritual music and all these different musics coming together to form what we now call jazz. In 1940, as a much older and forgotten man, Jelly Roll Morton was pulled in by an anthropologist, Alan Lomax. And for a month, every day would come into the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. and just tell these amazing stories, combining uh, music and storytelling together and to tell the story of the origins of jazz. And I started becoming, as I was recovering from this accident, becoming really interested in this figure, Jelly Roll Morton.
1: Now, I know a story about him too because I, I'm, the story I've read about Jelly Roll Morton is that he had a Haitian business partner and it all went bad between them and he had a voodoo curse placed upon him. Wow. And he couldn't get work. Like he was publishing music as well as performing it and his business went bad, his skin broke out in hives, powder was found under his pillow and he died. My understanding is he died, this is the folktale I've read, gasping, wizened and broken. It was almost like that kind of – he suffered something that was – a, a a bit like what you hear stories when in Aboriginal culture, a bone is pointed or something like that. Some mm. curse was placed upon him and it was commonly believed in the community that he was, he was eventually killed by that curse. It's a pretty wild story.
2: I didn't know that. It does remind me that, that sense of magic in that story and the sense of magic in, in my mother's psyche and in her culture so many cultures and traditions have a sense of that magic, which um, is a kind of folk magic. That, and it's closely related. It's so poetic. It's so, so closely related to poetry. I consider myself really blessed to, to have been exposed to that kind of sense of folk magic in my life. Uh, and that curse, that story of the curse reminds me of, you know, stories that my grandparents would tell of people that they knew who'd been cursed or of their own curse, having ended up in the Soviet Union by accident for 17 years.
1: As your piano playing was getting better and you're performing with all these artists all, all over the world, something else was happening in your life, which was the gradual encroachment of that hideous condition called tinnitus. When did you really notice that had kicked in properly
2: I first became aware of tinnitus as a permanent part of my life when the MP3 player hit the scene and I bought one. I remember um, riding my bike one day, getting home, I'd been listening to music through the earphones while I was riding my bike through heavy traffic and I thought to myself, oh, this is ringing my ears and it just never went away. And then over the years, gradually, as you lose your hearing, um, very common among musicians. Each time a little bit of your hearing goes, another sound pops up. It's it's like um, it's like a phantom pain uh, when with amputees. You know, you hear stories about amputees mm. losing uh, a limb, but feeling that limb, feeling pain in the limb that's no longer there. Apparently, tinnitus is a similar th- uh, kind of mechanism whereby. Uh, your brain compensates for a lost frequency. So the frequencies you hear are frequencies you can no longer hear. What does it sound like? Well, I was saying to a friend of mine with kids the other day, um, if you want to teach your kids not to listen to music too loud, just find on the computer a really, really high-pitched, like an incredibly high-pitched tone and just put it on the stereo quite loud, loud enough to hear from anywhere in the house. And then, and if when they start arcing up, just tell them, don't listen to music too loudly. It's, it's just a constant high-pitched, like, like... Like an alarm? Like an alarm. All the time?
1: The whole... Every, every waking minute. Was this the legacy of playing in bands for years?
2: Yes, and listening to music too loudly and playing the piano and singing at the top of my voice and playing. Re- and re- to, to me, Tinnitus is the legacy of the joy of music. And that's kind of how I've decided to deal with it over the years because, you know, like when you're faced with something like that, you have to, the The wonderful challenge of it, The the, the silver lining is that you have to deal with it. And the way that I've dealt with it is to see it as the legacy of joy. What did the specialists
1: tell you about it?
2: That there's, there's not much that they can do.
1: Not surgery? Nothing that can be done about this alarm that's going on in your ears all the no. time?
2: And it's no longer even a, a single uh, pitch. It's like now there's about four or five different pitches that I can hear.
1: And are they discordant?
2: Oh, yeah. But it can be a lot worse. Uh, the French writer Céline... Uh, who was in the trenches in World War I. His description of tinnitus is incredible. He describes about 20 different sounds, gurgles and screams and yelps. It's great a great big long list of words that he uses to describe his tinnitus, and at the end he calls it the organ of the universe. To him, it's the sound of existence itself. And to me, sometimes I think to myself, it's like a little alarm bell in, that's going off in my ear at all times that's reminding me that life is finite and that it's precious and I need to live well.
1: We're sitting in a room that's very quiet and it's engineered to be very quiet as a radio studio. Does that make it worse, being in a super quiet room? If uh, we weren't talking, I would find it
2: unbearable. I would have to find um, some kind of background noise to to take the edge off because it's a, it's also... Uh, it's, it's, it challenges your sense of um, focus. If your only focus is the sound that's coming from within, it, it quickly becomes unbearable. So you need a kind of external stimulus to take your focus away.
1: So if you're standing in traffic is that traffic noise displacing the yes. the the alarm or the no, alarm doesn't displace that
2: it's displacing my focus Oh. so uh, my focus is nat- naturally tends outward if there's no- nothing to latch onto outside of me it will at that point invert and, and go inward and then i'll hear
1: all those noises So you haven't had silence in your life for how long now?
2: For about 15 years, I will never have silence again. And I must say to anyone who can experience silence, embrace it and enjoy it
1: because uh, when you no longer have it, you miss it. See, I think of silence as something terrifying in a way. Like I'm thinking of that scene, you know, that scene in 2001 where Frank the astronaut's spoiler alert, had his uh, lifeline cut and he's flailing about in that perfect silence in space. There's something terrifying about that. Do you see silence the same way then? Do you have a different idea of silence?
2: Well, um, put it this way. If I find myself in the country on the top of a hill looking over a beautiful scene, the auditory experience is very different to the visual experience. The auditory experience is still a noisy and dissonant one. So living with tinnitus is about living with constant dissonance. Can you make peace with that noise? It's an uneasy peace. As as I've described, I've I've got a couple of strategies to deal with it, but there are times when no amount of rationalisation can take away from the annoyance
1: of that permanent sound. Is there some kind of Buddhist mindfulness that might help in this case to actually have a mastery of one's own attention, to shift one's focus away from the constant alarm in the head to something else?
2: Absolutely. And in fact, it's it's an opportunity to explore that system of ideas. I'm a really, really big fan of the uh, concept of neuroplasticity. The brain's ability to change itself that's something that is a virtue you know neuroplasticity is a great blessing to be able to you know in that to be born Armenian for example and to be brought up um, in this culture of adaptation and change and transformation is to me uh, something I take enormous strength out of and it's partly what the book is about um, that sense of the richness of life and the uh, multifariousness of life.
1: Alex, I'm going to go out by playing a bit of piano music from you, which you've published under the name of Tenderloin Stomp. That's been your performance performance name. It's a piece called What a Little Moonlight Can Do. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you, Alex. Thank you so much. Thank you. Alex Landragon is the author of a new novel called Crossings. To a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au/slash conversations.
0: Hi, everyone. I'm Naz. Um, Uh, Hi, Naz. Last month I spent $65 on subscription services and I only watched one show. My own. Uh own And uh, this month I spent $85 on beauty products for my hair and skin and I I didn't even get to show it off to anyone because I spent the entire month on the couch watching my own show. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 fair enough. Been there. Hi, I'm Nazim Hussain, and in 2021 I presented a series of The Pineapple Project all about being frugal, and I learned a lot. But I've realised since that there are huge areas of my life that we didn't get to cover, and it's showing up on my bank statement, big time. I need help. Quick. And by the sounds of it, you do too. So, this season of The Pineapple Project, we're getting even more frugal. So let's tweak our streaming subscriptions. Budget out our beauty regimens. Date without debt. And heaps more. New pineapple project. Find us on the ABC Listen app or wherever you pod.